0: Ecclesiastes chapter 8 through to verse 12 of chapter 9. The teacher writes, Who is like the wise man, who knows the explanation of things? Wisdom brightens a man's face and changes its hard appearance. Obey the king's command, I say, because you took on oath before God. Do not be in a hurry to leave the king's presence. Do not stand up for the bad cause, for he will do whatever he pleases. Since the king's word is supreme, who can say to him, what are you doing? Whoever obeys his command will come to no harm, and the wise heart will know the proper time and procedure. For there is a proper time and procedure for every matter, though a man's misery weighs heavily upon him. Since no man knows the future, who can tell him what is to come? No man has power over the wind to contain it, so no one has power over the days of his death. As no one is discharged in time of war, so wickedness will not release those who practice it. All this I saw as I applied my mind to everything done under the sun. There is a time when a man lords it over others to his own hurt. Then too I saw the wicked buried Those who used to come and go from the holy place and receive praise in the city where they did this, this too is all a breath. When the sentence for a crime is not quickly carried out, the hearts of the people are filled with schemes to do wrong. Although a wicked man commits a hundred crimes and still lives a long time, I know that it will go better with God-feeling men who are reverent before God. And yet because the wicked do not fear God, it will not go well with them and their days will not lengthen like a shadow. There is something else that is like a breath that occurs on earth. Righteous men who get what the wicked deserve and wicked men who get what the righteous deserve. This too, I say, is all a breath. So I commend the enjoyment of life because nothing is better for a man under the sun than to eat and drink and be glad. Then joy will accompany him in his work all the days of the life God has given him under the sun when I applied my mind to know wisdom and to observe man's labour on earth, his eyes not seeing sleep day or night, then I saw all that God has done. No one can comprehend what goes on under the sun. Despite all the efforts to search it out, man cannot discover its meaning. Even if a wise man claims he knows, he cannot really comprehend it. So I reflected on all this and concluded that the righteous and the wise and what they do are in God's hands. But no man knows whether love or hate awaits him. All share a common destiny, the righteous and the wicked, the good and the bad, the clean and the unclean, those who offer sacrifices and those who do not. As it is with the good man, so with the sinner. As it is with those who take oaths, so with those who are afraid to take them. This is the evil in everything that happens under the sun. The same destiny overtakes all. The hearts of men, moreover, are full of evil and there is madness in their hearts while they live and afterwards they join the dead. Anyone who is among the living is hope. Even a live dog is better off than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. They are no further reward and even the memory of them is forgotten. Their love, their hate and their jealousy have long since vanished. Never again will they have a part in anything that happens under the sun? So go, eat your food with gladness, and drink your wine with a joyful heart, for it is now that God's favor, God favors what you do. Always be clothed in white, and always anoint your head with oil. Enjoy life with your wife whom you love all the days of this meaningless life that God has given you under the sun, all your meaningless days. For this is your Lord in life, and in your toilsome labour under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. For in the grave where you are going, there is neither working, nor planning, nor knowledge, nor wisdom. I have seen something else under the sun. Race is not to the swift, or the battle to the strong, not as food come to the wise, or wealth to the brilliant, or favour to the learned. Time and chance happens to them all. Moreover, no man knows when his hour will come, as fish are caught in a cool net or birds are taken in a snare so men are trapped by evil times but fall unexpectedly upon them well that's the wisdom of the teacher I wonder what you made of that as Robin read it it's quite a
1: frank passage but it, it is written I think for our joy and our encouragement and our safety um, as well as our humility. So let's let's pray for God's help. Father, as we hear these words this evening, we come with all sorts of different things on our minds over the last few weeks. Father, we pray that you would help us to trust you as we hear your word this evening, that you would speak to each of us and that you would lead us closer to yourself. Help us to see ourselves rightly as we look into the mirror of your word. For we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Our enjoyment of things depends rather on our perspective as much as on the things in themselves. Um, This illustration works for me, but it might just be the sort of brain I have. See what you think. Um, Think about two people uh, staying in the same hotel or holiday resort. One person is a visitor on holiday. The other person is a manager, one of the managers of the hotel on her day off. Both of those people will eat the same food and sleep in similar rooms and have access to the same facilities. And yet we can imagine, can't we, that they would experience those things in very different ways. It must be very hard for the manager on her day off to shed that sense of being in charge, of being responsible for what's happening. Because, well, she would think, it's my hotel. I need to make sure things are right. And so we can imagine that as she walks around, she sees that roof work that needs done. Or she's thinking that actually the colour scheme in the lobby isn't as great as she thought. These things bother her. She has to sort them out. Or maybe she observes some inefficiency, things are running slowly in breakfast or something like that, and immediately in her mind she starts to analyze, why is it like that? She thinks about the staffing systems, the rotors, the training, that sort of thing. She feels she needs to understand why they happen like that, because it's my hotel, I'm the manager. Whereas, on the same day, in the same place, the person who's a visitor can just relax, He knows he's only passing through and there's so much to enjoy. The food, the gym, the pool. He isn't too concerned about how things work and whether they might be improved or not because what's the point? He's checking out tomorrow so he may as well enjoy himself while he's still there. It's not my hotel, he thinks to himself. It's not my home. I'm just a visitor. Our enjoyment of things depends on our perspective, as much as it does on the things in themselves. As we come to Ecclesiastes this evening, in this passage, we find that it says something similar to us about our lives. It says that our perspective, the way we see the world, and in particular the way we see ourselves, will control our enjoyment. We can either view ourselves, it says, as managers or as visitors. Either I am in charge and I need to set the agenda and understand it all and hang on to it all or else I can learn to let go and see myself as merely passing through as just a creature in God's hands and learn to take what he gives for now and enjoy it. We're naturally inclined to view ourselves as managers but that is a fantasy says the teacher in this passage. Face facts And we'll see that he lays them before us, very bluntly. He says, we are often powerless. There is lots in life we can't make sense of. We're going to die. That's what he says. We're not managers. We are visitors. We are creatures in God's world. We are simply passing through. And it sounds quite bleak when you put it like that. But the passage builds up to a very encouraging conclusion He's not trying to put us down. He's not trying to discourage us. He's trying to help us to enjoy life. We are often powerless. There is lots in life we can't make sense of. We're going to die. Therefore, his conclusion is, throughout the chapter, trust God and enjoy what he gives you now. That is his conclusion. When we learn to see ourselves as visitors instead of managers, it sets us free to make the most of life. Because instead of trying to control the journey, which we can't do, we can learn instead to enjoy as much of the ride as we can. There's no point worrying about the things you can't affect. So you may as well enjoy what's there to be enjoyed. That, in a nutshell, is the message, I think, of this passage. But just before we get into it, it's worth pausing to consider that conclusion and why the Bible says this to us. Maybe that strikes you as an odd thing for the Bible to say. It sounds a bit self-indulgent. Because the rest of the Bible, we're more used to hearing about not enjoying ourselves. We've got work to do. It's like we sang in that last song. We have the call of Jesus to take up our cross and follow him along the narrow road in life. The Apostle Paul talks about Christians as being like a hard-working farmer or a single-minded athlete. How do we fit that with the laid back message of Ecclesiastes? We've only got a couple of weeks left in this great book and so that's the sort of thing we have to think about. How do we process this within the rest of scripture? That's the sort of thing we need to try and see as we go through the passage this evening. There's an outline on the back of the service sheets if you haven't spotted that. And we'll see that the writer starts off laying before us our limitations we are so inclined to view ourselves as managers. He goes back over some things he said already in the book. Face facts, he says. Realise your limitations. And there are three of them. The first one, he says, that we are often powerless. We are often powerless. At the beginning of chapter 8, he starts with a bit of an illustration. He's speaking about the royal throne room with all the people there. How should one behave in the presence of power? Well, he says, obey the king's commands because you took an oath before God. Don't be in a hurry to leave the king's presence, i.e. to storm out of there. Don't stand up for a bad cause, for he will do whatever he pleases. Since the king's word is supreme, who can say to him, what are you doing? In the presence of power, keep your head down. That's sort of what the teacher says, don't make a fuss every time you're unhappy or every time you don't agree with a decision. That's not wise, because the king will do whatever he pleases. And little you are hardly going to change his mind. And maybe that sounds a bit passive, a bit pragmatic even. Surely there are times when a principled stand is required. Well, yes. See how the teacher carries on. Whoever obeys his command will come to no harm. And the wise heart will know the proper time and procedure, for there is a proper time and procedure for every matter, though a man's misery weighs heavily upon him. Be patient, says the teacher. See what happens. Don't storm out of the meeting straight away. Bide your time, and maybe you will find a way. Who knows how circumstances will change. If you want to be a martyr, fair enough. But be careful, because you only get one shot at that. It's striking, if you look at verse one, the Hebrew word there for knowing the explanation of things is only used in two other places in the Bible, in the story of Joseph and in the book of Daniel. That's no coincidence, because both of those men had to deal with absolute monarchs who were hasty and absolute. They kept their noses clean, they bided their time and they came through okay. In fact, more than that, if you know the stories of Joseph and of Daniel, they exerted a great influence for good in their respective settings in the courts of Egypt and of Babylon. Because in the, in the king's presence, they were humble. They recognised their limitations in the face of a greater power. And really I think that is what the writer is talking about here. Maybe we can take from this some applications about how to be wise with a boss at work or as Christians in society. Maybe we can. Maybe the teacher is saying to us, don't lose your cool over every little setback. Take your time. Play your hand with tact and diplomacy. See how things come out in the wash, no matter how cross you are, verse 6. Think of Joseph. Think of Daniel. And take a deep breath. Maybe we can learn that sort of lesson here. But I think, really, there is that bigger point in view The teacher is using this royal illustration to ask us, will you recognize the limits of your own power? You're not the king. The king will do what he wants, not what you want. Lots of things in life are not up to you. Now, how are you going to deal with that? I think that's the point here. The teacher is using this royal illustration to show us the wisdom of humility if we do want to connect Ecclesiastes into the wider teaching of the Bible, that would be a good place to start. Humility. In more than one context in life, I need to understand, I need to stop acting like the crown is on my head because it's not. Life will not always bend to my will and on my timescale. The wise person will understand that and accept it instead of pointlessly trying to kick against reality there is great benefit in seeing that I am a subject, not a ruler, a creature, not a master. Wisdom begins in humility because we are often powerless. And then he moves on from that opening illustration and he begins to speak even more bluntly about some of our other limitations. Second point there, he he says that there is lots in life we can't make sense of. There is lots in life we can't make sense of. See how that theme of ignorance or uncertainty comes up again and again. So verse 7, we don't know the future. And even in the present, there is much that is very puzzling. Look at verse 14, please. There is something else meaningless which occurs on earth. Righteous men who get what the wicked um, deserve. And wicked men who get what the righteous deserve. Deserve. Life is very unfair. Crooks of every kind live life in the sun with their ill-gotten gains, whether that's bank robbers on the Costa del Sol or crooked politicians in their second homes. We see it all the time. Whereas, on the other hand, all kinds of misfortune seems to befall those who are quiet and innocent and upright and admirable. It's the sort of observation that raises questions Philosophical questions, questions about how God can allow that. Psalm 73 is all about this, or the book of Job, or Habakkuk. But we know, don't we, that the questions are not just philosophical. They are also deeply personal. When things happen to us, or in our families, or to friends' families, it makes us ask, why? Why them? but we cannot understand why things turn out the way we do. And we never really will make sense of it. See how chapter eight finishes. No one can comprehend what goes on under the sun. Despite all his efforts to search it out, man cannot discover its meaning. Even if a wise man claims he knows, he cannot really comprehend it. Well, the end of chapter nine. I've seen something else under the sun. The race is not to the swift or the battle, um, to the strong, nor does food come to the wise or wealth to the brilliant or favour to the learned. But time and chance happen to them all. Honest realism from the teacher. And it's very healthy for us. One of the main targets of Ecclesiastes we've seen is, is escapism. That's what the teacher has said to us again and again. Face facts. Don't try to escape from what life is really like. And that's something that our wider culture needs to hear. Stop thinking that money or success or relationships will answer all your problems and satisfy your deepest needs. That's not going to happen. Wake up. But escapism is also alive and well inside the church. As Christians, we often try to comfort ourselves with neat answers about suffering, about why things are the way they are. We quote Bible verses in a very glib way. All things work together for good. (laughs) I know the plans that I have for you, plans to prosper you, but the teacher here is leaving no room for pat answers. There's lots in life we can't make sense of. And it's very healthy for us to recognise this because it will inoculate us against being blown over by the vagaries of life. God's rule over this world is not as neat and tidy as we'd often like it to be. And those of us who've been Christians for any length of time may well have seen that in the lives of others or even felt it in our own lives when tragedy or hardship strikes and it batters our faith in God. We think, I just can't believe in a God who would allow but we read a passage like this and it forewarns us and forearms us because our loving Heavenly Father is also the inscrutable Heavenly Monarch. If the Bible is a book about God rather than us, then that, at least partly, is how this book presents him. His thoughts, as we sang earlier on, are higher than our thoughts, mostly inaccessibly so. Fear God, says the teacher, There is lots in life we can't make sense of. And then, thirdly, among all this uncertainty, one certainty, we are going to die. Again, that comes throughout the passage. So chapter 8, verse 8, no man has power over the wind to contain it, so no one has power over the day of his death. Or over into chapter 9, this is the evil in everything that happens under the sun, The same destiny overtakes all. The heart of men, moreover, is full of evil and there is madness in their hearts while they live and afterward they join the dead. Anyone who is among the living has hope. Even a live dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. They have no further reward and even the memory of them is forgotten. Their love, their hate, their jealousy have long since vanished. Never again, Will they have any part in anything that happens under the sun? It's very blunt, isn't it? It's the unvarnished truth from the teacher. We are merely passing through like the visitor in that hotel. We cannot stay forever in this life. One day we will all check out. We don't know when, but we do know it. The same fate overtakes everyone, he says lately I've been thinking about this a bit more because I'm trying to write a new will for me and for Kath and it makes me think one day I will die and this world will carry on without me. A few people will be a bit sad for a while but then this world will carry on without me. And maybe that sounds morbid but the writer isn't trying to shock or sadden us. In all of this in all this thing in all this that he says about our limitations, he is simply trying to blow away the fantasies of our escapism. Not to make us sad, but so that we might enjoy life. Enjoy life as it really is, instead of wishing it away. That's his conclusion in the passage. We're often powerless, there is lots we don't understand, we're going to die. Therefore, trust God and enjoy what he gives you now. The teacher speaks frankly about our limitations, but ultimately this is a very life-affirming passage. For starters, we're in God's hands and he is good. The teacher has confidence in that. We might not see it straight away, but in the long run his justice will be done. Have a look at verse 12 please in chapter 8. This is the teacher's confidence. Although a wicked man commits a hundred crimes and still lives a long time, I um, guess I know that it will go better for the God-fearing men who are reverent before God. Yet because the wicked do not fear God, it will not go well with them and their days will not lengthen like a shadow. It's interesting to think what time scale is in the teacher's mind there. It's a bit like the hymn we sometimes sing, I cannot tell, but this I know. There are fixed points in life and the fact that God is judge is one of those. We don't always see how his justice plays out, but we can be sure that it will. Crime may seem to pay, but the wise person knows that that is only an appearance. You see, it's a positive thing. Once we accept that we are creatures, we begin to see that we are in God's hands. Humility and security are linked like that. A creature can entrust themselves to God. And the creature can also enjoy life. See how that's the flow of chapter 8. It flows saying you don't know what's going to happen, you don't understand the ways of God, but in verse 15, so therefore I commend the enjoyment of life because nothing is better for a man under the sun than to eat and drink and be glad And joy will accompany him in his work, all the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. Or over into chapter 9, it's the same. The certainty of death leads him to the same conclusion. He says, go, verse 7, eat your food with gladness and drink your wine with a joyful heart, for it is now that God favours what you do. Always be clothed in white and always anoint your head with oil. Enjoy life with your wife, whom you love, all the days of this meaningless life that God has given you under the sun all your meaningless days. For this is your lot in life and in your toilsome labour under the sun. Whatever your hands finds to do, do it with all your might. For in the grave, where you are going, there is neither working, nor planning, nor knowledge, nor wisdom. That's what he says to us this evening. You're going to die, so learn how to live. In the week ahead, Slow down. Slow down and enjoy what God has given you to enjoy. There is a lot of rough in life. The teacher knows that. But there is also some smooth. Slow down. Look around. Enjoy it. After all, where else are you rushing off to? If we keep on choosing to be busy, It's not always a choice, but often it is. If we keep on choosing to be busy, then life will just fly by. And then it will be gone. All around us, life is happening. Don't miss it, says the teacher. Spend some time with your spouse or with a friend. Listen to that music you enjoy. Go for a walk. Look at the sky. Eat that food you like because soon you won't be able to do any of those things. It's a humbling message from the teacher, but it is uplifting. Instead of pointlessly trying to pretend that we are managers, trying to control every aspect of our journey through life, we can learn to relax and enjoy what is there to be enjoyed. That's the way of wisdom. Life becomes more real, more precious, when we learn to live within our limitations instead of trying to kick against them. And so the teacher says, trust God and enjoy what he gives you now. Now as we finish, what about that question from the start? Doesn't this all just sound a bit self-indulgent? I mean, wine and oil and taking time to savour the good things in life. How does that fit with the rest of the Bible? How does that fit with the call to follow Jesus as a man of sorrows? Well, let me say three things as we close. First of all, what we have in Ecclesiastes here is a message about the, the goodness of creation. God made this world to be a wonderful place, and He gives us good things to enjoy. And I think what this passage does for us is it helps us to avoid a misplaced sense of guilt. Often that is there in human religion. A sense of guilt attached to enjoying material things. There is in human religion that tendency towards asceticism, foregoing material things. Think of um, the priests who forego marriage, or the monks and nuns with their self um, uh, harshness on the body. We sometimes picture holiness that way, as though purity was somehow linked. With bareness. But the doctrine of creation in the Bible pulls us well away from that. God's good gifts are there to be enjoyed, yes, within the limits of His will and of self control, but nonetheless, to be enjoyed with gratitude. And don't let anyone tell you otherwise, says Paul in 1 Timothy 4. Those who forbid marriage and would ask you to abstain from certain foods, that's not Christian says Paul. It's funny, the same Apostle Paul, who was so driven, so self-controlled, also knew how to enjoy the gifts that God gives. He often had to go without, and he did end up a martyr. But the lesson that he has for us, in line with this passage, is that he wasn't po-faced about it. He was a happy creature. As was Jesus, according to his human nature anyway. He wasn't afraid, was he, of going to a party when he turned water into wine. He wasn't stingy. It was top stuff. And so we see that Ecclesiastes here fits with what the rest of the Bible says. It's affirming this big Bible idea about the goodness of creation. And then secondly, it also fits because it's a message about the shortness of life. Our lives will soon be over and so treasure what there is now But also look beyond it. That is the perspective in this passage. The teacher knows that God is there to judge the living and the dead. And so enjoy what you have. It's better than not enjoying it. But don't just live your life for now. Don't be a fool, says the teacher. There will be a judgment. The wise person knows that creation is good, but that life is short. And that ultimately... The Lord is to be trusted. That's the third and final way this passage fits right into Scripture. Because the bottom line of the Bible, the bottom line message to every book and to every one of us is simply this. Trust the Lord. Trust him. Recognise that you are a creature and accept that you are in his hands. Stop trying to run against that stop trying to be a master on your own you are a creature in God's world and you can either come to terms with that or you can rebel against it make a wise decision says the teacher and learn to live with all your limitations we are often powerless there is lots in life we can't make sense of we are going to die Therefore trust God and enjoy what he gives now.